It's been observed that in Western culture, like America, that we only assert ourselves about our rights when looking for help. You know, we we do not know how to contend, one author put it, unless we're standing up for our rights, standing on our own dignity and our own goodness, end quote. Standing up for our rights in our dignity and our goodness. For example, many folks today are fine with, uh, 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 with handouts because the way they are pitched, free college, free health care, or you name it, are not pitched as something we ask for as undeserving people. They are pitched as entitlements. That would have been strange to a few generations back. It could be observed that we are naturally prideful about asking for help in a way that admits we are undeserving. Can you imagine what would happen in our culture, in this nation, if there was a sweeping feel of, I'm so undeserving? When was the last time you saw several, uh, or just one interview that articulated that? I'm very undeserving. We will turn to gods of our own making who will not offend us. That's critical. People are naturally religious, even in atheism. And put our trust in things that will not offend us because we convince ourselves that we are special and truly worthy of God's help. Somehow worthy of God's grace. On one side, we can have a superiority complex that says, I do not need help with my own goodness and righteousness. On the other side, we can have an inferiority complex that constantly is bummed about our shortcomings. We're depressed by ourselves. But instead of asking for help and admitting undeserving, you know, as our nature can be, we can fall into self-protection and not ask for help on the basis of we're not deserving. Complex creatures we are, aren't we? Well, let me ask you, what do you know about grace? Being gifted. Not in consideration of any works of righteousness that you've done. Gifted by unmerited favor. given despite how very undeserving we are and can be, how open today are you to seeing your need for grace? I mean, just imagine having an unpayable debt not only erased, erased, but then given immeasurable treasure. So your debt erased and then granted immeasurable treasure. Imagine knowing every wrong thought, word, or deed, every failing and disobedience towards your Creator could be forgiven, not because you did your best, but because of God's sovereign grace. Imagine knowing that your offenses and rebellion against the most supreme being could be forgiven, not because you somewhat deserve it. How would you feel about such grace? I mean, here's some options. You could resist the idea of your need for God's grace because you're convinced that you're not that bad and then only to die that way in that mindset, realizing you are worse than you can imagine as you stand before the holiness of God. You could resist the idea of your need of God's grace because you are too caught up in your own imperfections, striving to somehow fix yourself until you feel better about it, and then you and you feel sorry for yourself to the point you remain silent and never cry out for help and die in that sad reality. Or you could see Jesus came for those who know they are in need of God's grace. He is gracious to any sinner who would ever repent and believe. 
You know, friends, only when we are truly desperate are we willing to do anything it takes, including humbling ourselves to find God's help. I want to give you just a plain example from God's word about this this morning. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7, verse 24 is where we begin as we close out this chapter. And the text is on page 894 in the Bible that's provided for you there in the pew. It will help you to have God's word open as you follow along in the sermon this morning. We want the, the point, uh, and point and points of the sermon to be the point of the text. And as you're turning there, Mark's gospel, as I mentioned before, is like a docudrama revealing here and there these things about Jesus that the author clearly wants us not to miss in the scope of all of Scripture. That where Jesus is, the kingdom of God is. The reign of God is breaking in through the person and power of Jesus. He's come to replace the old covenant shadows with fulfillment in himself. He's forming in himself not merely a new nation, starting with the 12, that's representative of the disciples. Not merely a, a new Israel, but a new humanity in himself. He's leading a, that newer and promised exodus prophesied in the Old Testament. He is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. In every way, Jesus is unlike anyone else. And so in our section this morning, starting here through 8, chapter verse 13, salvation is going to the Gentiles. This is meant to be surprising. And I hope we can pull that out as we go. And at Jesus' baptism, God identified Jesus as the Isaiah servant, the Isaiah prophesied, who was to be a light to the nations. Well, here, here it is. You're, you're going to see it again right here. And after he clarified the nature of purity in the previous section we looked at last week of the heart, he goes now into Gentile territory. The people who the Jews automatically viewed as unclean. Ceremonially unclean, morally unclean. And that's true. And this anticipates his forming of a new people of God comprised of believing Jews and Gentiles. But let's look at the text. Let's look at the text together. Mark chapter 7, verse 24 through verse 37. He got up and departed from there to the region of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it. But he could not escape notice. Instead, immediately after hearing about him, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. And she was asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. He said to her, Let the children be fed first, because it isn't right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She replied to him, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, because of this reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. When she went back to her home, she found her child lying on the bed and the demon was gone. Again, leaving the region of Tyre, he went by way of Sidon to the Sea of Galilee through the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a deaf man who had difficulty speaking and begged Jesus to lay his hand on him. So he took him away from the crowd in private. After putting his fingers in the man's ears and spitting, he touched his tongue. Looking up to heaven, he sighed deeply and said to him, Ephtha, that is, be opened. Immediately his ears were opened. His tongue was loosened. And he began to speak clearly. He ordered them to tell no one. The more he ordered them, the more they proclaimed it. They were extremely astonished and said, He has done everything well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. This is God's word. Well, this is exciting. Isn't it interesting to see how more receptive that people here are to Jesus compared to the prideful people in the previous section of Israel. Why was Jesus greeted this time with such a crowd and with everyone's notice? It's likely the Gerasene demoniac that Jesus freed 
has been preaching and people are ready to listen now. You know, when Jesus changes the sinner's life, word gets out, doesn't it? From a literary perspective, Mark wants to assure his Gentile readers that the good news is for them too. The Savior is not just for one nation. He is for all nations. Mike, Mark highlights that those outside of Israel, the unclean by grace, are recognizing that Messiah has come. This is Peter reflecting back with Mark. You know, it was happening back then. The Gentiles were seeing it. Salvation has come to the Gentiles right here. Here a Gentile woman finds acceptance with God through her faith apart from any dependence on the Jewish purity laws. Again, this is another grenade Mark drops in for us to see. Mark's description of the daughter's possession by an unclean spirit reiterates the theme of impurity found in the previous episode, illustrating the need to purify the heart that Jesus discussed. The faith of those highlighted in this section of Scripture is neither presumptuous nor tentative. Having faith is believing that God is who He says He is, trusting in His integrity to do what He says He will do. It is being confident that He will always do what is right for our good and for His glory. What then is Mark telling us to trust and to believe here? Here's the central point for you if you're taking notes. And it's hard to say it this morning. Here it is. Jesus is gracious to needy sinners. Jesus is gracious to needy sinners. Therefore, trust in him alone for salvation. Trust in him alone for salvation. Point number one. And there are two sections here of the text, so I have two points. Number one. Approach him in humility. Approach him in humility. Covering verses 24 through 30. First sub point. It's humbling to know he comes towards those so distant. It's humbling to know he comes towards those so distant. Look at the overarch of scripture as you see this text, beloved. Let us be intelligent readers of the Bible. Jesus made time to travel to foreign soil to give us a glimpse of the Great Commission, demonstrating beyond question that God's kingdom knows no ethnic, racial, national, or gender barriers. So please don't miss that in the passage. Christ is the greatest missionary who ever lived. Let me give you an example why we know this is true. He came the greatest distance from heaven to earth to bring the good news of salvation. We struggle to go across the parking lot sometimes. He also made the greatest sacrifice, giving his life in the place of wicked, rebellious, unclean sinners that we might be reconciled to God. You know, Jesus has been spending all of his time ministering in the Jewish provinces and that ministry was drawing overwhelming crowds. And, uh, crowds. and we know from context uh, in the previous chapter, he was exhausted, so were the disciples. So Jesus left the provinces, the Jewish provinces, went to the Gentile ter- territory, likely to rest, and he doesn't get any rest. This woman was a Gentile, the text says, according to Greek culture, a Syrophoenician, a Phoenician from Syria. She hails from a city that the Old Testament deemed to be a wealthy and godless oppressor of Israel. Again, that's another scandal against her. Will Jesus be gracious to this lady from Tyre as he was to the unclean outcast within Israel? Will he? What will Jesus do? So the author wants us to feel the distance between her and Jesus already. This holy teacher, Jewish teacher, And this Gentile woman from a very despised region, in relation to the Jewish traditional practices, she breaks all the rules here. She's not just separated, by the way, just because of the fact that she's outside of the old covenant people. She has not become a Jew. 
But more importantly, she is like us all. She's separated from God as a sinner. All the ceremonial laws, all those pictures were to teach us that we are all unclean before God, separated from Him because of our sins. Our sins and rebellion put us all at enmity with God. We are most undeserving before God. We deserve to answer for our sins. I see a lot of good-hearted people desiring to share Jesus with people, but they fail to talk about that aspect. We are sinners, rebels against God. From external appearances, the woman has everything going against her. She's a Gentile, a woman, and her daughter is possessed by a defiling spirit, all of which factors would render her off limits to close contact with a Jewish rabbi such as Jesus in that day. So what will God do? He, He doesn't owe her, yet here he is. He has come to her area. God has come to us in the flesh for a reason. We need Jesus more than we could ever know. Second subpoint. It's humbling to see how desperate we are. It's humbling to see how desperate we are. You see what happens in the text. She falls at his feet. This reminds you of Jairus back in chapter 5. Concerned for his child as well. And also reminds you of the Gerasene demoniac. These are pictures of, realistically, of who we all are, desperate. That's what we sang this morning, come you sinners, poor and needy. If you don't know, now you know, we're all desperate. Everybody in the text should be coming before and falling at Jesus' feet. She enters the house without an invitation, falls down, and begins begging Jesus to remove a demon from her daughter. The verb beg is a, is a present progressive. She keeps on begging. Nothing and no one can stop her. She was doing something very bold here. And it's been said that there are cowards, that there are regular people, there are heroes, and then there are parents. It's not surprising at all that this desperate mother is willing to push past all the barriers for her child. Maybe you feel this way as you get on your knees and pray for a child in your life. Her daughter had an unclean spirit. There are more folks out there today, whether we acknowledge it or not, they're either possessed or under the sway of demonic spirits. Trapped in ideological disasters, lies of the evil one. And what is our weapon? The word. Like we looked at last week, we can put together all kinds of policies and practices, but this has to be changed. You know, it's an unknown strategy. It's not a, excuse me, it's not an unknown strategy for the evil one to go after our young people and control them. You, you wonder with a burdened heart, you want to go to a, maybe a parent sometimes and think, why aren't you heavy and burdened and in prayer about this? This is sobering and serious. Demonic sp- spirits whisper to our young people at school, television, and media. I mean, they're already dealing with their own fallen nature. They have the world, the flesh, and the devil just like us all. Telling them there's no God. That their worth is only in their aesthetics and in their sex appeal according to lustful eyes or how much money they have or how many likes they have on social media. And that God's word can't be true. And that they will have plenty of time. You've got plenty of time, Satan whispers to every young person in this room. You've got plenty of time right now to live for your own pleasures and fulfill all your emotional pursuits. Young people, that's a lie from hell. It's not true. Demonic influence is real if you can't tell. We have no shortage of young people spiritually depressed, spiritually anxious, and in serious trouble of making decisions that will in many ways do serious damage to their lives if they're not rescued by the grace of God. 
Parents, we are those who should be lifting up our children daily in prayer. Only God can liberate them from their sins. We can, we can, in many ways, mold them, coach them, but we cannot breathe life into them spiritually. We need to sow the gospel, live the gospel, pray the gospel, disciple. So some of you today are heavy-hearted for a child. So let me encourage you, don't stop praying. Come to Sunday evening service. Keep praying. Pray with us tonight. See the faith of this woman and take them to Jesus. Verse 27, we have this very interesting exchange between Jesus and this woman. Let the children be fed first because it isn't right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Why why did Jesus say that? Jesus says here that first because of his responsibility was to preach the gospel to the children of Israel. But he implied that there would become a time when Gentiles would be recipients of God's blessings, which is consistent with the Old Testament. Uh, For us in our ears, it's unsettling to think of God's son referring to any person as a dog. Uh, But as Jesus begins to respond to the woman's persistent appeals for help, we can be sure that something else lies beneath the surface of his apparent rebuff here. Jesus is being intentionally provocative in order to elicit the correct response. Mark is apparently oblivious to the problems in the story that that jar our sensitivities. That's That's our sensitivities being forced upon the text. We assume that Jesus is obligated to respond to every request and to heal everyone. We assume that Jesus is obligated to respond to every request and to heal everyone. That's not that's not a right assumption. Our prejudice is that Gentiles are just as important as Jews and we're prone to de-Judaize Jesus and are offended by the particularity of God's election. God chose Abraham and God made promises to come first to Israel. He didn't ask us our thoughts on the matter. He didn't have to come to anybody. He didn't have to save anybody. So we can expose our own biases by imagining a, a, a similarly de- despised foe from our context as the petitioner. Um, yeah, let's not do that. Paul said this in Romans 1.6, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it's the power, God's power for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek, to the Gentile. So Jesus concentrated his, his ministry on Israel. There were particulars for him to fulfill. For all sorts of reasons, he was sent to show Israel that he was the fulfillment of the promises of God's word, the fulfillment of the prophets, priests, and kings, and the fulfillment of the temple itself. I think Jesus is deliberately scandalous here again, throwing stumbling blocks in people's way. He affronts the Pharisees by calling them hypocrites. Remember that last section? No one got offended by that. But people find this section striking. He called them hypocrites to their face. He said, you're a bunch of actors. You're a bunch of drama queens out there acting this all out. And nobody's fooled. Scoffing at their beloved traditions. And here, he insults the Gentile woman by hinting she is an undeserving dog. The Jews referred to the Gentiles that way. Jesus knew well about the sinfulness of the Gentiles, by the way. Remember the ones who killed John the Baptist and put his head on a platter? The sinfulness of the Jews. He knew the sinfulness of the Gentiles and he knew the sinfulness of the Jews who abused one another. One should allow this striking comment of Jesus to stand. Don't try to pull the teeth out of it. Don't try to soften it. Let it stand for what it says. And emphasize that one must overcome the scandal before one can open the door for Jesus to help them. And it is scandalous to be told We are undeserving, that we are lowly, but that's the fact. Fact is fact. As we stand next to the holiness of God, as creatures of the dust who've done nothing but rebel against him, somehow I am not, I am more than that. No, we're sinners. And we can ask ourselves, what in the story would have offended us? How would we have responded if we were her? That's something we should all ask. How would I have responded if he had said this to me? Our answers reveal much about ourselves. We might say, 
If that's the way he feels, I'll never come to him for help, you know. No one likes being called hypocrites, an evil generation, a brood of vipers, whitewashed tombs, foxes, or dogs. This woman's attitude in the face of refusal, though, is key to the passage. It's not about how witty and and bright her, her response was. If you read it that way, you can't read. That's not what the text is teaching. Interesting to know his words were enough to pour cold water, by the way, on the flames of her hope. Yet her faith was not quenched. It was a faith of that immortal kind nothing can kill. Some evangelists out there, so-called evangelists, are scared to death to talk about sin, to preach the law and then the gospel. Often when young people will come and talk to me about a relationship with Christ or following Christ. The first thing I do is not try to just quickly check a box. They're like, yeah, they're, they're there. They've expressed belief. You know what I try to do? I'm like, are you sure? Are you sure you want to follow Christ? Really? Let's talk about that more. Discipleship is a process, beloved. I wouldn't add any works to salvation, but people need to know the gospel. It calls us to turn from our sins and trust in Jesus. There's a a team change that happens. There is an allegiance to Christ unlike any other. There's an accountability to Christ and the fellowship of His saints. There's obeying everything He's commanded us to do. She responds like this. I understand. I'm not from Israel. I do not worship the God that the Israelites worship. I don't have a place at the table. I accept that. Isn't this amazing? I may not have a place at the table. This is, what, this is the heart of what's going on here. There's more than enough on that table for everyone in the world, even a dog like me to have. And I need mine now. She's wrestling with Jesus in the most respectful way and she will not take no for an answer. And I love what this woman is doing. She accepted the priority of Jesus' mission to the Jews, but pointed out that Israel's privileges did not exclude Gentiles from enjoying the overflow. Hallelujah. She showed no sense of entitlement. That's strange today, isn't it? No sense of entitlement, no expectation that Jesus would heal her daughter. On the contrary, she appealed for mercy. And owing her nothing, Jesus extended grace upon grace here. I have no racial claim to the promises of God. I have no righteousness worthy of divine rewards. I only, I have only my need and my faith in your mercy. That's what's going on here. Her humility, her, her humility here left no room for a spirit of entitlement. There's some people, maybe even in this room, that think God's, God owes them. You know what he owes us? Justice. That's what God owes us. One person said, she may have been a Gentile idolater, but she did not suffer from idolatry. She did not come expecting praise for her faith. Oh, your faith is so wonderful. Let me praise you. She didn't come expecting that. But wanting healing for her sick daughter, she accepts that she is unacceptable. If you're going to take anything home from this lady as this, she accepts rightfully in truth that she is unacceptable. Mark wants us all to come away with this point. I am unworthy. I am unworthy of eternal life. I am unworthy of the goodness of God and of His kindness. I am unworthy. That's the kind of person Jesus saves. The one who knows the truth. You know, Dwight Moody is reported to have said that Jesus sent no one away empty except those who were full of themselves. And the saying that God helps those who help themselves is not true in salvation. It's true in growing in godliness to work out our salvation with fear and trembling to make our calling and election sure, but not in being delivered from sin and judgment. Only Jesus can help us. And Jesus' ministry reveals that God has not sent him to reward the deserving, but to serve the needy. Whoever they are and wherever they may be found, God helps those who confess that they are needy and deserve nothing. What a Savior. 
Next up one. It's humbling to see how powerful and gracious he is. It's humbling to see how powerful and gracious he is. Verses 29 through 30. Jesus told her, because of this reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. When she went back to her home, she found her child lying on the bed. The demon was gone. She appears to understand the purpose of Israel's Messiah better than Israel does. That's what Mark is revealing here. And what Jesus did was a sign that he had meant what he said about the clean, about clean, cleanness and uncleanness. The old barriers, the old taboos were being swept away. The dogs under the table were already sharing in the children's bread. And pretty soon they would cease to be dogs and become children alongside the others. And we're going to actually, in God's mysterious providence tonight, that's what we'll talk about in my devotion. It's just interesting timing that this sharing and being one people in Christ comes up right here. Jesus is indirectly teaching something about the nature of the kingdom of God. You know, friend, there are, there are two ways to fail to let Jesus be your Savior. One is being too proud, having, as we mentioned earlier, a superiority complex. Not to accept his, his call to divest yourself of any trust in yourself. Repent of your sins and trust in him alone. The other is through an inferiority complex, being so self-absorbed that you say, I'm just so awful that God couldn't love me. That is not to accept his offer. This is to reject the love of God, refuse to seek Him, refuse to come after His mercy, refuse to accept it, refuse to be content with it, as to say, I'm, instead, I'm, uh, you'd like to say, I'm too good for it. Well, friends, don't let any superiority, inferiority, both rooted in pride, keep you from Christ. Here's some applications uh, to think through as believers, Christians. Looking back at this woman here and seeing the gentle and lowly nature of Jesus, shouldn't we be encouraged to pray with persistent trust in God? We are, giving, we are given the liberty to bother the Lord with our prayers. He's not bothered. Omnipotence can't be bothered. He can't be wearied. He's infinitely patient. If you're not seeing results and the situation remains impossible, Keep coming to him. Don't stop. Don't back off. Keep praying. He loves it when his children come to him. He isn't deaf. He's hearing everyone. Every one of his children. He isn't cruel to make you wait. He's accomplishing something wonderful in your life. And he's cultivating in you a great faith. Keep at it, beloved. Remain persistent. Deliberately wait for God's work. J.C. Ryle noted here, fathers and mothers are especially bound to remember the case of this woman. They cannot give their children new hearts. They cannot give them a will to choose Christ's service and a mind to love God. Yet there is one thing they can always do, pray for them. When children will not let us speak to them about Christ, they, they cannot prevent us to speaking to God about them. End quote. Another application here is, is more about appreciating the grace of God. What a magnificent picture. We are all like those with no rights, like a dog looking for scraps. I acknowledge I don't deserve a place at the table, but I believe there's enough even for me on that table. Just a few crumbs. Amazing grace and mercy of our Savior lifts us up. No longer a dog, a sinner, but a child saved. No longer under the table, but now a member of the family at the table. Friends, when we come to this table the first Sundays of the month, don't forget we were not privileged enough to, in any way deserving to sit at such a feast. That's why we sing lyrics like, Lord, why was I a guest? Why was I a guest? At your table. Are you, I'm going to ask this boldly. Are you willing today to see yourself as the dog? You are, so that you might be transformed into the child you might become. Perhaps your sin is greater than you realize. But his grace is greater than you could ever imagine. 
Jesus is gracious to needy sinners. Trust in him alone for salvation. Number two, approach him as one who is desperate. Approach him as one who is desperate. Similar theme here. Jesus went north to Sidon before turning southeast to the region of Decapolis, 10 cities. This was a serious journey, lots of miles, and again, to highlight God's love. This appears to be a horseshoe-shaped journey would have constituted a 120-mile walk. My goodness. And it is an unusual course. And it may have been taken to further... Uh, uh, he may have taken this route, we, some speculate, to avoid the Herodians or the Pharisees, but it also could have been just an extension of his ministry. More dogs to receive crumbs from the table. Why should we approach him desperately, beloved? Number, first sub-point. Trust that he will hear your cry. Trust that he will hear your cry. 31 through 35, verses 31 through 35. Specifically, you see they bring a deaf man there, verse 32. He can't speak. Uh, He's had difficult speaking. They begged. Here it is again, that that desperate view here. Uh, Begged Jesus to lay his hand on him. And you can't help but see, again, it is a great love to bring people to Jesus. Trusting that he can do what he says he can. And we do this again through prayer, through telling people about Jesus. And note here, verse 33, Jesus takes the man away from the crowd. You see that? It takes him to a private uh, setting here. Why? Well, perhaps to enhance the personal connection with the man. Perhaps we can we have each to do our own business with the Lord might be emphasized here in the text. It's an individual thing. Uh, but perhaps also because Jesus is continuing to refuse to be anyone's magician. Try to imagine this man as he grew up. He always has been a spectacle, this poor man. He's deaf and therefore he can't produce proper speech. Just imagine the way people made fun of him all of his life. Jesus knows this and refuses to make a spectacle of him now. He wasn't trying to just blow up his, his, uh, his social media so everyone would just appreciate him and make, think he's this, uh, you know, magnificent magician. He is identifying with this man now emotionally. Jesus is not an entertainer. His miracles are, are, are meant to elicit, are not meant to elicit oohs and ahs, but to elicit the conclusion that he is God. And this seems evident from his further instructions there in verse 36 about the crowds. But why did Jesus touch this poor man the way he did on the ears and the tongue? And there's a lot of people who speculate about Jesus' reasons there for doing that. But it appears that Jesus deeply, again, I just want to say, identifies with the man. All the touching of the ear and his mouth, it's like, it's like sign language to this, this man. He comes into the man's cognitive world and uses nonverbal speech that he can understand. And notice how he takes him, again, he, t- he does this all the way from the crowd. Verse 32, the phrase there, difficulty speaking, is in, in the Greek, is the exact uh, wording of the Greek version of the Old Testament in Isaiah. Same wording. And deafness, blindness, and mute- muteness, all such disabilities are signs that we live in a, in a broken world. And here comes the maker, the creator, our God and King, Jesus. And just his healing here, friends, I just want to give a cheat sheet as you read the Bible. He's reminding us right here, these, these, this deafness, blindness, muteness, these physical illnesses will not exist in the new heaven and new earth. So when Jesus heals someone, we're supposed to fixate on Jesus. But look deeper. Look further, look lower than the surface, and we find the passages, uh, precious spiritual truths. They illustrate what Jesus does in the spiritual realm. All of us are spiritually injured, broken, busted. We are blind and deaf in our sins. We none look for God. We none see Him. We none love Him. J.C. Ryle, again, was so helpful here. 
We're meant to see our Lord's power to heal the spiritually deaf. We can give the chief of sinners a hearing ear, but only Jesus can give him the spiritual ear. He can make him delight. Jesus can make them delight in listening to the very gospel, whence one that a person previously ridiculed or despised. This room is full of people who used to mock the gospel, and then God came to their aid, opened their eyes and ears, and now they're, they praise the Lord for the gospel. We are meant to see the Lord's power to heal the spiritually dumb. He can teach the hardest of transgressors to call to God. He can put a new song in the mouth of someone whose talk was once only of this world. And he can make the vilest person speak of spiritual things and testify to the gospel of grace. This is our God. And when Jesus pours out his spirit, nothing is impossible. We must never despair of others. We must never regard our own hearts as too bad to be changed. He who healed the deaf and the dumb is still alive. The cases which moral philosophy pronounced hopeless are not incurable if they are brought to Christ. So Mark is giving us a window, friends, right here in this healing into the day and place where there will be no need of healing anymore. One day Jesus is going to perfectly transform all things. Verse 34, Jesus, don't miss that. He sighs deeply here before he prays. Don't miss that. This is a sign of compassion. Follow The sign of compassion here, excuse me, the sigh of compassion here followed the look of communion. He sighs and then he prays. Look at the text. That's what he does. So after having looked into the face of the Father, the shock of, of humanity's needs was even more dramatic. And Jared Wilson noted here, truly the closer we get to God, the more aware we become of the needs of other people. The real secret of compassion, Jared Wilson notes, is communion with God. The depth of your communion with God will ultimately determine the fruitfulness of your ministry among people. Jesus was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Sympathized with people in their needs, so much so he took on true humanity, full humanity. As he stood before this man, can't you just sense that the omnipotent God here, he was aware that the man was one of many examples of hurting humanity? In the midst of a world of woe, sorrow, and heartache, Jesus groaned with compassion. And that's the way we should be. He saw the poor man in the midst of suffering. God, give us compassion for lost people, for those who are hurting. You know, there are opportunities right here locally where we could be the hands and feet of Jesus for the purpose of telling them the good news. I'd love to get you connected with some opportunities where we could go out and be active in our communities. Why would Jesus be in pain here? Again, it's because he has emotionally connected with this man. He's about to heal him, but Why isn't Jesus grinning at him like some cheesy health, wealth, prosperity preacher on television for everyone to see and put on a show? Why isn't Jesus doing that? Why is he saying, wait till you see what I'm going to do for you? I think it's because right here in this side, we see. We see the man of sorrows. There's a deeper identification going on. There's a cost for Jesus healing this man That is to come. You know, as we bring together God's word, you you can't miss this. Mark wants his readers to think about this. Isaiah said the Messiah will come to save us, but also with divine retribution, justice. Jesus here isn't smiting people. He's not taking out his sword, is he? He's not taking power. He's giving it away. He's not taking over the world here. He's serving it. Where's the divine retribution? Where's the justice? And their answer is, he didn't come first to bring divine retribution. He came first to bear it. And that comes by the cross of Calvary. You see, on the cross of Calvary, God, the Son, the eternally begotten one, in true humanity, would identify with us totally. 
not just in having our experiences and weaknesses physically and know what that feels like, to know what we go through emotionally. He came to identify and take on our sins. He never sinned himself, but the Lord laid our sin and guilt and shame on him, the sin of any and all who would ever repent and believe. On that cross, the child of God, the Son, the eternally begotten one, was thrown away, cast away from the table without a crumb so that those of us who are not children of God could be adopted and brought in. Put another way, the Son had to become a dog so that we, would not, so that we could become sons and daughters at the table. Jesus, the perfect holy one, the one who really could, could claim all uh, entitlement, became our substitute on Calvary's cross. Oh, we should be treated below and beneath a dog. We should be treated for our sins. We should be eternally separated from God for how we have loved and trusted and obeyed everything and glorified everything else, including ourselves above him. We have all prioritized ourselves. We don't deserve a seat at the table. Are you kidding? We deserve to be cast out. But Jesus, he endured God's judgment on our behalf. Come to Christ if you don't know him. Put your trust in him. Say, oh God, I am, le- I am the worst and chief of sinners. I- forgive me for Jesus' sake. I believe in his life, death, and resurrection that he's coming again. Forgive me, O oh Lord, and God will save you. Last subpoint: Give him the praise he alone deserves. Give him the praise he alone deserves. And this is finally 36 through 37 here. Verse 36, he calls for them to keep things down about this miracle. Again, Jesus was not, did not want to see a political thing happen. Jesus' reasons for silence are twofold. He wants to define his messiahship on his own terms rather than people's expectations. Second, he recognizes the, uh, the exuberant messianic expectations among the crowds could touch off a messianic insurrection and so hinder the purpose of his ministry. He didn't want to overthrow a government. He wanted to proclaim the kingdom of God in himself and accomplish his mission at Calvary and resurrection. Notice verse 37, they were extremely astonished, utterly astonished. Two terms here conveying the idea of being beside oneself with amazement. That made me think of Deb this week when she saw our Savior. She had to be beside herself. Hmm. These people couldn't believe their eyes and they told everyone they knew about the wonder-working Jew from the other side of the Jordan. Again, just such a different reaction from his own countrymen. These pagan Gentiles received his miracles as a gift from God and affirmed, he has done all things well. This is giving glory to the one who created all things good. Let's do some application here. When Jesus heals people such as this deaf man, how do we tend to view these miracles in the Gospels? You know what we do? I think we see them often as interruptions of the natural order. And given the promises of the Old Testament, these miracles are not an interruption of the natural order, but the restoration of the natural order. We are so used, we are so used to a fallen world with sickness, disease, pain, politicians, you name it, death seemed natural to us. And in fact, they are the interruption. And Jesus' supernatural miracles are a return, friends, to what's truly natural. See it rightly. Let me conclude. The son became a dog so that we dogs could be brought to the table. He became mute so that our tongues could be loose to call him king. 
The good Mr. Keller said, don't be too isolated to think that you are beyond healing. Don't be too proud to accept what the gospel says about your unworthiness. Don't be too despondent to accept what the gospel says about how you are loved and how loved you are. So I ask you again, what do you know about grace? Let's pray. Father, we're freshly uh, reminded this morning how as your children, you called our name. That each and every one of us who are born again experienced a precious moment of grace. Not, Not very different from what we read in the text. And so, God, we're only moved to thanksgiving that you came towards us. We would have never moved toward you. We were running from you. Humble us fresh this morning unto delight. God, remind us that we are so low in our sin, but we are so loved in Christ. Thank you for cleansing and washing your people. Thank you for sending your spirit. Grow grow us closer to you, Lord, so that we will be moved to tell more folks about you to the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Amen.